about the woman who had been married to four men. Four men now. Her first husband was a millionaire. Her second husband was a film producer. The third man in her life turned out to be a butler. And the fourth husband was a funeral director. A millionaire, a filmmaker, a butler, and a mortician. Of course, the woman explained her choice in men as follows. It was one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. (laughs) Well, believe it or not, that's a good lead-in into tonight's Bible study. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul deals with the subjects of marriage, divorce, and singleness. He addresses marriage in verses 1 through 9, divorce in verses 10 through 24, and singleness in verses 25 through 40. There's something for all of us in tonight's text. Now remember, up until this point in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he has addressed problems that had existed in their church. The believers in Corinth were divisive. They were prideful and carnal. In the name of tolerance, they were overlooking blatant sin. Unable to settle their own disputes, they were suing each other in the secular court. And like the immoral surroundings of their pagan city, these believers had lax sexual standards. See, Paul had taken the church to task on all these subjects and even more. But now in chapter 7, he answers questions that had been posed to the Corinthians Uh, in a previous correspondence. Apparently, these last 10 chapters make up Paul's response to his uh, answers to their questions, to a previous correspondence. And he begins by discussing marriage. Verse 1, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Here the Greek word translated touch refers to an act of intimacy or to touch in a sexual way. So here is the Apostle Paul's first point about the institution of marriage. It's good if you avoid it. That's what he says. Now, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, God had said, it is not good that man should be alone. And remember his answer for our loneliness was marriage. Yet here the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So which is it? How should we feel about marriage? Reminds me of the old saying, marriage means showers for the bride and curtains for the husband. People have read chapter 7 and accused Paul of having a negative attitude toward marriage. That's an unfair conclusion. Paul's comments here are not intended to be a comprehensive examination of marriage. This is a reply to questions that he's been asked. If you want the unabridged version of Paul on marriage, start with Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33, where he exalts marriage as proclaiming it to be a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. Read, too, Hebrews 13, verse 4, where Paul assures us that sex in marriage is pure and holy. Also read 1 Timothy 4 verse 3, where he lists forbidding to marry as a mark of apostasy. When you consider the totality of Paul's teaching, there's no contradiction. Generally speaking, Genesis 2 is right. 
It is not good that a man should be alone. Yet there are unique circumstances, and there are distressing situations where 1 Corinthians 7 is also right about marriage. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul goes on in verse 2. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, Jesus speaks of people with the gift of celibacy. He refers to them as eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And I want to go on record as saying, I believe that there is a gift of singleness. For some people, sexual appetite isn't a problem. They have no burning desire or need to be married. They can take it or leave it. To them, life seems just as appealing flying solo as it does getting married. Later in chapter 7, Paul emphasizes that for a Christian, singleness can actually be an advantage. Singles aren't distracted by many of the concerns that preoccupy married people. In essence, a single Christian can be more singly devoted to the Lord. But understand, either you've got this gift or you don't. Don't over-spiritualize this decision. It's just pretty easy to discern. If the sight of a pretty girl causes a man's pulse to raise and his hormones to heat up, then God hasn't blessed him with the gift of singleness. He needs a wife. And if a lady goes to sleep dreaming of her prince charming, with whom she can live happily ever after, then she doesn't have the gift of singleness. If you are, quote, the marrying type, then it's best that you get married. If you don't, your desire for physical intimacy with the opposite sex is going to lead you into sexual sin. Verse 3. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. When Kathy and I married, we made a swap. Her soft, curvaceous, beautiful body became mine. And my hairy, ugly, portly body became all hers. What a deal for me. Maybe not so much for her. But now a big part of my marital responsibility is to meet her sexual needs. And part of her responsibility is to meet mine. Paul says that we are to render the affection due. The Greek word translated due means owed. A married person owes it to their spouse to engage in sex lovingly and passionately and frequently. Now, I'm sure there's some selfish, sex-crazed husband out there somewhere who has misused this verse as a scriptural endorsement for a kinky or a perverted demand. When Paul says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, he's not turning the wife into her husband's personal sex toy. A wife is not to be used or abused for selfish gratification. Ephesians 5 verse 25 explains what should be a married man's motivation. 
Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. God calls husbands to love their wife unselfishly and sacrificially. Guys, love her in a way that cleanses her mind, that purifies her heart, not in a way that pollutes or damages her. But marital love does carry with it a sexual expectation. As long as both partners are physically fit, it's not unreasonable to expect sexual interest and expression from your spouse. Paul says it is the Christian's duty. Paul says to married couples in verse 5, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The one legitimate excuse for not having sex is fasting and prayer. Not, I'm too busy. Or, I'm too tired. No, the consent to forego sex should be a mutual consent. Did you hear about the couple? They were moving from a cramped condo into this spacious new home. They had this little girl now, and they needed more room. And as they toured the prospective house, the daughter saw a third bedroom, and she got so excited. She whispered. She says, Mom, this house is perfect. There's enough bedrooms here so you and Daddy won't have to share. Well, Paul is saying that mom and dad need to share the same bed and do so regularly. Marital sex should be frequent. Always remember the devil's strategy. He does all he can to encourage you to have sex before you get married. Then he does all he can to discourage you from having sex after you get married. Every married couple should realize that sex, the sex act, is a tool to build with not a weapon to fight with. If you withhold sex as a means of punishing your spouse, you're disobeying God. If you use sex to reward your husband for a behavior that you like or bribe him into something that you want, that's manipulation. That's not affirmation. That's a cruel use of what should be an expression of committed love. Pastor Charlie Shedd, he wrote letters to his daughter before she married giving her great advice, one read, Dear Karen, smart girls don't ration their men. Your husband needs sex even when it may be the farthest thing from your mind. Convince him if you can that you love him so much you enjoy sharing your charms with him simply because he's in the mood for more. Wives, your husband goes out into a sex-obsessed world daily. And he's not been blessed with the gift of celibacy. If he had, he wouldn't have married you. If he had a low sexual libido, he probably wouldn't have gotten married at all. He'd be singly serving the Lord. I'm sure sex wasn't the only reason he married you, but trust me, it was a big reason. He needs a holy, healthy sexual outlet, and he's committed himself to forego all other women to cultivate that relationship with his wife. A wise woman doesn't ignore the obvious. Loving and passionate and frequent sex with his wife is what takes the sexual pressure off a husband. The temptations aren't as strong if a man knows he has all the feminine affection he can handle at home. 
verse 6. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. In other words, you don't have to get married. Paul says marriage is not a commandment. It's a concession to healthy human sexual desires. According to Scripture, nobody has to marry. But if you do, remember the vow comes with a wow. Be faithful to the obligation that you've made to your spouse. Verse 7. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Both singleness and marriage are gifts from God and should be used for his glory. Paul's gift happened to be singleness. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Now there are those that have wondered about Paul's marital status. Was he a widower? Was he divorced? Or did he just never marry? Though we're not certain, there are some clues. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that according to Jewish law, he was blameless. Now, it would have been hard to say that for Paul if he had not been married. The Jews said that there were seven people that God won't accept, and at the top of their list was a man who never married. Second was a man with no children. Of the 613 Jewish laws, number one was the command to repopulate the earth. We also know from Acts chapter 7 that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. And to sit on the Jewish Supreme Court, you had to be married and have children. It's my opinion that Paul had been married with kids at one time. But upon his conversion to Christ, his wife deserted him. You know, in some Orthodox Jewish homes today, if a family member becomes a Christian, they hold a religious funeral. The Christian convert is literally divorced from the community, stripped of his inheritance, considered dead. This is what might have happened to Paul. However Paul got there, at the time he wrote to the Corinthians, he was single. And yet he knows that singleness is not for everyone. He emphasizes this again in verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, God's release for the sexual pressure is marriage. Once a pastor, he preached a great sermon one Sunday. It was entitled, Great Sex for Christians. He began, brothers and sisters, sex is great on days that start with the letter T. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, today, and tomorrow. (laughs) Hey, sex is a beautiful, God-ordained gift reserved for the marriage bed. Don't ever think that celibacy is more spiritual than sexuality. That's simply not true. If God has given you a normal sex drive, then your goal should be to put yourself in position to get married. I mean, here's what you need to do. You need to graduate and then get a job and then move out from mom and dad. And that might take you a while. So while you're doing it, while you're single, learn to resist temptation and gain some self-control. And then start praying for a spouse and start looking for one in all the right places like here at church. And then once you find them, have some faith and get married. 
Marriage is God's means to relieve sexual pressure. As Paul puts it, it is better to marry than to burn. Now remember, Paul is answering questions that have been posed to him by the Corinthians. So having dealt with marriage, in verse 10, he tackles the subject of divorce. He says, now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. Now Malachi chapter 2 verse 16 is the Bible's definitive word on divorce. It reads, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. And this is what Paul echoes throughout 1 Corinthians 7. He continues, But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. In Matthew 19, our Lord Jesus acknowledged the reality of divorce. You know, he credited it to the hardness of men's hearts. Moses, in fact, laid out in God's law stipulations governing divorce, but to make it more difficult, not easier. God's laws were to discourage divorce and to minimize the damage that it would cause. But divorce was never and is never God's ideal. With God, no marital problem is unsolvable. This is why, according to verse 11, if a spouse departs the marriage, then he or she has two options remain unmarried, or be reconciled to their estranged spouse. If you divorce your spouse without a biblical justification, it's a sin. Sometimes a cooling off period or temporary separation can be beneficial, but it needs to be followed by a sincere effort at restoration. Verse 12, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now first, don't get tripped up by Paul's phraseology here. He he says that it's I, not the Lord, saying this to you. Several times in the chapter, it sounds as if he's downgrading his counsel from divine inspiration to his own mere opinion. That's not what he means. If what he wrote wasn't inspired by God's Spirit, it wouldn't have ended up in the pages of Scripture. See, generally, Paul's writings ran parallel to the teachings of Jesus. But there were certain subjects that Paul addressed that Jesus had not dealt with directly. And here's a good example. For most of Jesus' ministry, there were no believers. I mean, not even his own disciples truly believed until after his resurrection. Thus, Jesus had little opportunity to address the subject of a believer married to an unbeliever. That meant that on this issue, Paul couldn't write, Thus saith the Lord, or this is what Jesus said. Yet the Corinthians were facing this challenge, and they desperately needed wisdom on the subject. Thus, through the process of biblical inspiration, the Holy Spirit provides them the counsel that they need through the pen of Paul. And here are Paul's instructions to them. If you're a believer who happens to be married to an unbeliever and your spouse rejects the Lord, that doesn't give you the right to reject your spouse. If he or she wants to stay married, 
then you stay put. This addresses a common problem in the first century. The Bible is clear that a believer should never marry an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us that this is like hitching two species of animal in the same harness. It makes for an unequal yoke. A Christian and a non-Christian have two different natures. Harness them together and there's bound to be tension and friction. There's an old Puritan proverb that says it. If you're a child of God and you marry a child of the devil, you're going to have problems with your father-in-law. It's true. And what would be the, and, and just thinking, what would be the best way to avoid marrying an unbeliever? Anybody? How about not date one? There you go. Don't forget, the sign at the start of the Alaskan Highway reads, Choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 200 miles. <laughs> when you marry someone, you're choosing your rut. That's what you're doing. With some wisdom, you can extrapolate where it's going to lead. Thus, while you're single, be careful. Christian marriages until death do you part, happy or not. But here's what often occurred in the first century. Many of the first Christians were married before they heard the gospel. Thus, the gospel became a wedge issue between them. Some spouses converted. Others did not. And here Paul tells the Christians, if your unconverted spouse wants to remain married to you, then you stay married. You stay in the relationship. And here's why. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, understand what Paul isn't saying. He's not teaching that the unbelieving spouse or kids will get to heaven on the coattails of the believing spouse. Salvation is never by proxy. The words sanctified and holy are the same Greek word, hagios, which means to set apart. The word speaks of position and opportunity. And thus Paul is saying that a believer who remains married to an unbeliever continues to shine God's light into the dark life of that unbeliever and into the lives of those kids. Thus Christian witness and wisdom remains a constant influence. The believer's involvement ensures to a degree the spiritual safety for the spouse and for the family. And it enhances the likelihood of that husband or wife and those kids ultimately coming to know Christ and experiencing salvation themselves. If you're a believer married to an unbeliever, it does get tough. Imagine a three-legged race. Adult dads tied to short, chubby nine-year-old children. It's kind of amusing to watch the mismatched pairs awkwardly stumbling along. But this is what every day looks like to a believer who's married to an unbeliever. Permanently attached to a person of uneven stature and unequal stamina. Permanently attached to someone with different priorities. Often the believer ends up carrying an inordinate amount of the load. Such a life isn't easy. But if it means the eternal salvation of your family, then it's worth it. If this is your life, God loves you and he will give you strength. Verse 15, 
But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Again, a believer in Jesus should not depart as long as the unbeliever wants to stay married. But if the unbeliever chooses to depart, then the believer is no longer under bondage. He or she is then free to move on with their life. Thus, there are two biblical scenarios, two biblical justifications where God permits divorce and remarriage. The first is in Matthew 19, verse 8. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Notice the exception. It's sexual immorality. The Greek word is pornea, and the word is a broad one. It includes all kinds of illicit sexual activity, homosexuality, adultery, pornography. In other words, if a person falls into persistent sexual misconduct, their spouse is free to divorce and to remarry. It's not commanded. The offended spouse can choose to forgive and restore the marriage, but it's an option that God makes available to the wounded spouse. You know, in the Old Testament, the adulterer was stoned to death. That made the victim a widow, and thus she was free to remarry, or he was free to remarry. In the New Testament, God has mercy on the adulterer, but he still affords the betrayed victim the same freedom to move on and to start over. And the second biblical justification for divorce and remarriage is here, desertion. Paul puts it, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. For a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. If you've been deserted by a spouse because of your faith in Jesus or your righteous conduct, then you have the prerogative to move on with your life and remarry in the will of God. The Greek word translated depart means to put room between. It speaks of a definite departure. This means that a husband who ignores his wife and watches too much football is guilty of insensitivity, but not departure, not desertion. Just keep that in mind. This means that a wife who spends too much money and time at the mall is disrespectful, perhaps, but she hasn't departed the marriage. Yet are there more grievous betrayals that do count as desertion? I believe there are. A husband who repeatedly beats his wife or kids physically. I think he's departed the marriage. That's just my opinion. Or a wife strung out on drugs and refuses to get help, oblivious to her family. Has she departed the marriage? People might come home at night and sleep under the same roof, but does that mean they're still committed to their marriage? Not hardly. After 38 years as a pastor, I've concluded that there are numerous ways to depart a marriage without actually vacating the premises and filing for divorce. Certainly these questions are problematic, and I never want to give a person in a difficult marriage a loophole to disobey God and to opt for the easy way out. 
If the unbeliever wants to remain, then the believer should remain. Hear me say it. You cannot divorce your spouse just because he or she is a jerk. But is desertion limited to the unbeliever packing his or her bags and actually seeking a change of address? I don't think so. Here's where we need to be led by God's Spirit and be convinced in our own hearts. Remember the one certainty we started with, the Bible's definitive word on marriage, God hates divorce. That's why we need to take marriage seriously. Verse 17 tells us, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Now Paul's addressing the subject of marriage. If you were married to Sam the unbeliever when you got saved, then stay married to Sam. You may just lead Sam to the Lord. But now Paul takes this principle and he applies it in a broader way. The principle here is to stay where you're called. And this can apply to more than just marriage. He writes, was anyone called while circumcised? Circumcision was the mark of a Jew. Paul is saying, if you're born a Jew, let him not be uncircumcised. In other words, don't think following Christ will get easier for you by adopting Gentile customs if you're a Jew. But then he says, was anyone called while uncircumcised? In other words, did you get saved while being a Gentile? Out from under the law. Well, let him not be circumcised. Don't think life's going to get easier for you by being Jewish and by adopting the law. It won't. Paul concludes, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. See, neither Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians have an advantage over the other. Both face challenges. Their culture matters little and has zero bearing with God. Paul is saying, if you're a Jew, be a believing Jew. If you're a Gentile, be a believing Gentile. Changing your circumstances won't make a life of faith any easier. Start living for Jesus wherever you've been called. Here is the key to living the Christian life. Bloom where you're planted. I hear people say all the time, oh, when I find a wife, I'm going to settle down and live for Jesus. Or they'll say, oh, when I get a new job, I'll start being honest and ethical. Oh, we're living together now, but when we get married, we're going to really start to do things God's way. No, no, a thousand times no. If you're serious about following Jesus, start doing things God's way now. Where he has you. If it takes moving out and moving in with a friend or informing your boss that there's certain stuff that you're no longer going to do, then so be it. Notice verse 20. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Once we had a guy, he came to know Christ. He was a distribution manager for Budweiser. He drove a company van. He was James's neighbor. He drove a company van, and he would come to our men's prayer meeting on Saturday morning, and he would park way down the street. We didn't care that he parked it. If he'd have parked in front of the street, we wouldn't have cared, but he was embarrassed. 
to park a beer truck in front of the church. One day, he confessed to me his occupation. He said that he was a beer distributor. He was afraid that we'd no longer accept him as a brother in Christ. I'll never forget telling him, I said, Scott, God says start where you've been called. So we're going to help you be the best beer distributor you can possibly be for Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that might eventually cause him a few problems, which it did. In fact, several months later, he resigned and he got another job. But he started where he was called. And this is what all Christians are expected to do. Verse 21, were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. Paul brings up this subject of slavery. Understand, slavery was common in Corinth. In fact, the Roman Empire was built on the back of slave labor. No other civilization owned as many slaves as Rome. And many of the early Christians came from the ranks of slaves. Yet seldom did Paul in the early church attack the evil of slavery head on. Christianity changed institutions by changing individual hearts. Here Paul doesn't discourage a slave from using his newfound faith to gain his freedom. He says, if he can, you should. Perhaps a master has an affinity for Christians. Use that to your advantage. But Paul tells the believing slave that even if his freedom from sin doesn't translate into freedom from slavery, don't let it stop him from living the Christian life. Here's the point. Begin your walk with the Lord wherever you're called. True happiness has nothing to do with your circumstances. It doesn't. Paul would tell you he had met many happy slaves and he had met many sad owners. Paul knows that happiness is the byproduct of a right relationship with God, not comfortable and cozy environments. Verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. How liberating is that? It's not our physical circumstances that dictate our status. It's our spiritual relationship with Jesus. A slave who is a Christian is the freest of free men. And a free man who's a Christian is a slave to the mercies of God. He sums up this principle. He says, brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. As Christians, the road is not always easy. We often find ourselves in a prickly place, but Paul says, stay put. There are lessons to be learned there. God has a reason. Stay where God has you until he issues your release. Verse 25. Now concerning virgins, or we would say, now concerning singles. In Paul's day and still today in Christianity and in the church, sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage. And so to the single Christians, he says, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. As we said earlier, in his language here, Paul doesn't abdicate the authority of inspiration. He indicates he's tackling a subject that Jesus didn't directly address. And so he says, verse 26, 
I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And in the rest of this chapter, Paul will extol the virtues of singleness and a single lifestyle. Up against the backdrop of the present distress, he refers to it. If you're single, these verses will provide you some hope and some help. If you're married, you didn't make a mistake. Paul knows his Bible and he sees value in marriage. But based on the present distress, as he calls it, he's going to explain why marriage may not be such a good idea. This is where he goes in verse 28. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Several factors complicated life for the early church. First was a vicious persecution. Remember, the early Christians, they lived under the constant threat of bodily harm. Under such conditions, marriage could be an awful liability. Think about it. A day at the office for Paul was preaching to hostile crowds, stirring up riots, getting flogged, prison time, shipwrecked in the deep sea. Ladies, what if you were married to Paul? It wouldn't be an easy life, would it? Honey, would you stop tracking blood in on the carpet, would you please? Or Paulie, honey, please talk to your angel about breaking you out of jail so you can be home in time for dinner. Voice of the Martyrs founder, Richard Warmbrandt, he once told of a fellow pastor who had been persecuted by the communists. They tried to torture him by denying Christ, torture him into denying Christ, but he stood firm in his faith until they brought in his 14-year-old son. When they began to beat the boy unmercifully, it was all the poor pastor could handle. He finally broke and verbally renounced his faith. It's been said, a man who is a hero himself is a coward when he thinks of his wife and children. A married man is vulnerable in hardships in a way that he wouldn't be if he were single. Paul's advice to married people is to live with the liability, but if you're single, getting married can set you up for greater risk. Verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as those that had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as those who did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Notice Paul says time is short. It's part of the present distress. The early church lived as if Jesus was coming at any moment. And thus Paul had streamlined his life so that his only care was Christ. And he encourages married people to do the same. Of course, Paul isn't suggesting that we abandon our marital responsibilities. I've known people who have used their commitment to Christ as an excuse for neglecting their families. This is not what Paul advocates here. Don't stop loving your family, but neither turn your family into an idol. 
You know, some Christian families are so busy catering to each other's needs that they sacrifice, you know, they don't sacrifice for anybody else. They only sacrifice for themselves. Remember, marriage's purpose is to serve God together, not, not be focused on ourselves. I think sometimes couples focus too much on the family. Or to focus on the family. You can focus too much on the family. The goal of a Christian family should be the glory of God. Verse 32, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. A single person is free from distress, and he or she is also free from distraction. When you get married, suddenly there are two sets of worries, two sets of expenses, two sets of demands, two sets of interests and perspectives that you now have to be concerned about. Trust me, if I weren't married, I wouldn't remodel my bathroom. If I wasn't married, I wouldn't be maintaining two cars. I would never hang Christmas lights. I don't do it much now, but I would, I would never hang Christmas lights or purchase lipstick. I'd never spend another dime on lipstick if I wasn't married. I wouldn't call home when I was running late. I could spend all my time serving the Lord, out witnessing to those lost pagan people on the golf course. That's where I'd be. But now that I'm married, God commands me to go home and minister to my wife. One husband writes, I didn't know what happiness was until I got married, but then it was too late. Hey, I'm, th- I'm thankful. I'm going to get in trouble for that. I'm thankful for my family. Marriage and family adds to my life in incredible ways. My wife and my kids are blessings from God. But if you're single, Paul's telling you, why take on the extra baggage? The other day I asked uh, one of our college-age fellows why he didn't have a girlfriend. He said to me, he says, well, I have a hard enough time putting up good grades now. What do you think it'd be like if I had a girl to please? And I understood. That was Paul's attitude. In what he called the present distress, a woman was a distraction that he didn't need. Verse 34. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. A wife's big concern is pleasing her husband. Well, I guess that's how it's supposed to work. That's the ideal. That's probably how it works most of the time. Not questioning that. Whereas a single person can care about the things of the Lord. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Why have a leash? Why be distracted when we're in this present distress? You know, in Ephesians 5, Paul depicts marriage as this beautiful love story. But he isn't always so romantic. As a matter of fact, his biblical picture here of marriage is not quite as flattering 
He calls it a leash. It's like a dog collar designed to curtail your freedom. Sounds a little harsh, but it's just what he says. (laughs) Marriage severely limits a person's autonomy. And in the next few verses, Paul speaks to either fathers or daughters. Speaks to uh, either fathers who have an unmarried daughter or to a daughter who is, married or who is engaged to a man or who's been pledged to a husband. He's speaking to a culture, remember, when men dictated the future of their daughters and wives. Thus, he gives these instructions. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. If she's getting older and wants to marry, then let them marry. Marriage is not a sin. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Again, Paul's point is clear. If you have the self-control to live a single life and serve the Lord without distraction, well, then that's good. It has its advantages. Hear about the wedding at the bride's house? The ceremony began at 645. But the host forgot one detail. Just as the pastor asked, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? A little bird slid from the mouth of the clock overhead and sounded cuckoo, 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 seven cuckoos. Well, that sort of sums up Paul's take on marriage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Why be cuckoo and forgo your freedom to serve the Lord, be single for the Savior, If you can. That's what he says. Paul concludes. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. A widow is free to remarry. But all Christians should marry in the Lord. That is to another Christian. But she is happier. (laughs) She's happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. And who could argue with that? Again, God calls some to be single. He calls others to be married. But He calls us all to bloom where we're planted. Whatever your status happens to be at the moment, do all that you do to the glory of God.